Well, as you're getting yourself situated, um, grab your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 4. We're continuing to move through Romans chapter 4. We're going to finish the second half of it this morning. We've entitled this section, this chapter, Gospel History. Gospel history begins with the story of creation. The whole of God's Word is really a story of the gospel, of how God would bring about the redemption of all humanity for those who put their faith and trust in Him. Creation, at the beginning of the Bible, is really God's power on display. God speaks and everything comes into existence out of nothing. But at the very beginning of Scripture, we see that the pinnacle of God's creative activity is mankind. And as God places man upon the earth, He then invites His creation, human beings, into His very own creative activity. Humanity, made in God's image, does many things that are similar to what God Himself does. So He calls humanity to bring forth life, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's design for humanity was to continue to create or produce image bearers, those who would shine forth the glory of the Creator, those who would bring glory to their Creator. But very quickly, sin enters the picture, and rather than create, sin brings destruction. It decreates, it ruins what God has created good. It ravages humanity. It brings nothing but death, both physical and spiritual. But in the midst of all this destruction and death, God still plans to bring forth life. He plans, actually, even as we have just sung, to recreate the world, to do away with both sin and death and all of its destructive power. As Paul has said in Romans chapter 4, as we looked at last week, Abraham and his offspring would be heirs of the world, of this new creation. They would inherit and rule this world the way that God had originally designed it to be ruled and inherited. This truth points towards this new creation. And when we back up in our text to verse 16, as we closed off our our time last week together in verse 16, we're reminded that the promise of God is 100% dependent upon God, and it is 0% dependent upon us. But until we get to verse 17, there's still some confusion. How is a faithful God going to take an unfaithful people and make them fit to rule the world? How will He find a faithful people? The answer is that He will not find them, He will create them. This isn't a new section. Paul is still expounding upon Genesis 15, verse 6, but there does seem to be a shift in emphasis from the promise of God to the very nature of the God who makes the promise. He is the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. He brings into existence things that do not exist. This is the power of God. And it's important to notice that the central focus in this passage is not on Abraham and his heroic faith, 
but on God and His life-giving promise. It is God, not Abraham, who brings life from the dead. Last week, as we looked at the example of Abraham and his faith and what God had done in and through him, we saw that through justification by faith, God credits all righteousness. We saw also that God clears all debt, and finally, that God calls all people. This week, we see that God creates all life. Understanding this is actually the key to strengthening our faith, and that's what God wants to do in our lives today. He wants to either give you faith, create faith in you, or He wants to strengthen your faith, to ground you in your faith in greater ways, and that's what we are praying for this morning. But before we dive in, let's read the text together and then pull it apart. We'll back up to verse 16. Here's what Paul writes. He says, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Again, we see so clearly in this text, even as we read it over, that it is God who creates all life, that God makes us right with Him by creating within us new life, and He brings that about by faith that is even a gift from Him. And again, understanding this is the key to strengthening our faith that can often waver in this life. As we look at this text… I want to show you three things. First, God's power to create all life flows through the person of His Word. It flows through the person of His Word. Now, here's what I mean when I say that. We like to say, are you a man of your Word? Meaning, your Word is only as strong as you, your character, your integrity. As we look at verse 17, It says this, that as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. You'll notice those words, as it is written, is a reminder that God had spoken to Abraham. What God testified to Abraham was that he was a person of his word. He is a God of his word. He is a God who not only speaks, but a God who can be trusted and believed. It's interesting, at the very beginning of Abraham's story, when his name is Abram, 
There's really no evidence that this man knows God at all. In fact, we know this, that he's brought out of a pagan culture, pagan idolatry. God calls him to himself. That means that more than likely, Abraham did not know God's past deeds. He didn't have a previous track record or or a resume of mighty works to consult. What did he have? Well, he had God's word. He had the fact that God had chosen to speak to him. But I want you to know that God's word to Abraham was not a call to blind faith. No, God revealed himself to Abraham in some very powerful ways. In fact, after Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness in Genesis 15, 6, right after that, God continues to bolster Abraham's faith. Abraham asks God, God, how can I know that you are going to bring about this promise that that through my offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed? How can I know for sure, God? A little bit of gospel history for us. After God makes that promise and Abraham makes this statement, Abraham, remember, told, or God told Abraham to look up to the stars and to to count the stars, and so too shall your offspring be. But then God does something unique, something that becomes a consistent theme and thread throughout the Scriptures. He makes a covenant with Abraham. A covenant is like a contract, and we sign contracts today to make sure that the other party follows through with their end of the deal, or that we follow through with our end of the deal And in ancient days, a covenant was a very serious affair. What we read about in Genesis chapter 15 is a common practice in the ancient world. God goes and tells Abraham to go and grab some animals, and then he tells him to split them down the middle and to separate them on either side of him. Again, in the ancient world, the idea of doing this, cutting a covenant it was referred to, was that both parties would then walk through the middle of the animals that had been split down the middle. It was a bloody affair, and it demonstrated the seriousness of the contract or the covenant that was being made. What they were declaring was that as they walked through, they were saying, so to do it to me if I violate this contract, if I am not a person of my word. But interestingly, in this moment, God does something really unique. Rather than Abraham and God walking through the animals, God actually puts Abraham to sleep. And he shows Abraham a vision, and what he reveals to Abraham is that God himself would walk through the middle of these animal pieces. He would make a unilateral covenant. God goes through alone. What God was communicating was that he knew Abraham, and he knew humanity, and he knew that they had no ability, no ability at all to bring about this promise, that it couldn't depend upon them to be faithful because they could not be faithful. It depended only on the faithfulness of God. It depended only on God doing exactly what he promised he would do. I'm going to walk through, God says. And actually, I'm going to take the penalty for your failure to keep your end of the bargain to me. I'm going to be both the signer and the co-signer. And in this moment, God is revealing to Abram that he is the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God who can be trusted. You know, we often pray, God, will you come through for me? 
in moments of despair or in moments of frailty and weakness and moments of fear, we, we, we cry out, God, are you, are you going to be faithful? Are you going to, to, to help me through this, God? You see, that's a, a false premise. As if God's the one that we need to worry about. There, there's lots to worry about in this world, but God being faithful is not one of those things. God's word is a perfect representation of God himself. Abraham had to put his confidence, his faith, his trust in the person of God who is making the promise. But you see, Abraham in verse 17 grasped two massive concepts about God. God had revealed in a sense to him two great ideas or concepts or truths about who he was. First, he understood that God, notice this, gives life to the dead. Abraham, he believed this. Although there had been no recorded resurrection at this point in history, and although God had not revealed any doctrine of resurrection, Abraham believed in God's resurrection power. Even to the point that we would learn later, he was willing to offer his own son Isaac, the son of promise, as a sacrifice because he believed with all of his heart in the God who could raise the dead. In fact, look at what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Listen to what it says. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He believed that God had the power to bring the dead to life. Secondly, notice this, he saw that God was the God who calls things that are not as though they were. He believed in the creative power of God, that God creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. Abraham's perception of God as the object of his faith was immense. That's what you have to see here. And and this gigantic concept, it dominated his entire experience of faith. And it can make all the difference in the world for us too. So very often, we have a small picture of God. We view our circumstances. We view our problems and our troubles and our trials as being gigantic and massive and overwhelming. And I'm not sure there are two better truths to go to when we're in those moments of fear and anxiety and worry to enlarge our vision of God. These are probably the two most potent and powerful truths about the God, Yahweh, creator of the universe. He is the God who brings the dead to life. He is the God who creates everything out of nothing. Who is like our God? We need a big God. Two questions. First is this, is God the object of your faith? Not not a God of your own making or own invention. Not the God you want to believe in, but the God of the Scriptures, the God of the Bible. There's only one way to know that, and that is to read the Bible and understand who this God reveals Himself to be. Abraham didn't have the luxury of inventing this God or making this God in his own image or deciding who this God was. He was fully dependent upon this God, revealing himself to Abraham, and then he must trust that this is who God truly is. Is God the object of your faith? Second question, how do you perceive the object of your faith? Is is your view of God today small, 
much smaller than it should be. You say, how do I know that? Well, one of the reasons is that you're easily overwhelmed, that you're constantly fearful and anxious, that you're constantly looking at your circumstances and despairing and worrying if, if they're ever going to be overcome. The greatest way to get a big view of God is to take our eyes off our circumstances and put them back on the God of promise. Because the truth is, we do have big problems. Maybe you haven't encountered many large problems in your life, but I promise you, problems will come, trials will come, challenges will come. But you see, God creates all life by the person of His Word. Secondly, and here's the good news, it overcomes the problems of our weakness. Our problems are not too great for God. Verses 18 and following, make note of that. We realize here that there is a problem, and look what it says, in hope he believed against hope. That's another way of simply saying there is no human way. He had to believe against believing a human solution was possible. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. This is what God promised him. He did not weaken in faith, but he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. This is no small problem. Abraham and Sarah faced an impossible reality, humanly speaking. You see, when Abraham and Sarah arrived at the hospital and asked for the maternity ward, the hospital reception would have redirected them to the geriatric ward, or maybe the psychiatric ward, if they insisted on going to the maternity ward. What happened to them was like a a resurrection. That's what the text is telling us. It's God demonstrating His power, God creating out of nothing, God bringing the dead to life. They are a a living, breathing example of God's power. When I say weakness here, what I mean is humanly impossible. You have to understand here, it's, it's not that Sarah struggled to get pregnant. It was humanly impossible for Sarah to get pregnant. She's 90 years old. Abraham's 100. Stuff doesn't work. Which, by the way, is is why she responds to the promise the way she does when she's told that she's going to have a child. In fact, it's so good, it's worth looking at in in full. It's one of actually my my favorite kind of comical scenes in the Old Testament. In Genesis 18, verses 10 through 15, listen to what it says. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Here it is, listen to this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. (laughs) Busted. Paul's aim is to point us to the creative power of the God of promise and to encourage us 
That faith means that in our helplessness and weakness, we take this life-giving God at His word. In fact, He will often put the obstacles in our path, in our way, in order, listen, in order to remind us of our weakness and show us His great power. So why would God do this? Because the truth is that we are inclined to doubt. We're inclined to not trust God. And often that's manifested in the reality that we like to take measures into our own hands. We're not quick to run to God's word in times of trouble. We're not quick to run to God in prayer. Or when we do, it's trite and trivial and it's simply, God, give me what I want. But very often we run to do the very things we should not do. We put our faith and our trust in ourselves. Like Abraham and Sarah did with Hagar because they believed that God wouldn't fulfill his promise. They, they did, in a sense, waver at one point in their life. God's not going to show up, so I'll do it on my own. How often we think like this. And all that gets us, and we know this experientially, is more trouble, more brokenness, more problems. We are weak and, and inadequate, and we're insufficient. No, sure, I know what the world teaches. The world pumps the message at us, and especially to our kids, you can do anything. What a bunch of baloney. That's just not true. You, you can't do anything you put your mind to. So what do you mean? But isn't that going to damage my self-esteem or the self-esteem of my, my kids? Yes. Yes, it is. But, but you see, self-esteem is not a biblical concept. The Bible doesn't speak anywhere about you believing in yourself, about you esteeming yourself. The Bible speaks to a God-esteem. That is where true courage and strength comes from, not in believing in yourself. The problem with believing in yourself is that eventually you're going to come across something you simply can't do. And if you put all the weight of expectation upon yourself to have the power within you to do it, eventually that's going to crack and crumble and leave you broken and empty. Believing in yourself is not a biblical concept. For the Christian, it's not a biblical concept. It is anti-gospel language. Somebody sent me a picture of a coffee mug, and it said this, a little meme, and it said, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. We love to quote Paul in Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me without realizing what that verse is actually talking about. It's not carte blanche or blank check. Yeah, I know we can do things in our human strength. I understand that. But what we're talking about here is things of spiritual significance and value. Anything that is honoring and glorifying to the Lord. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, verse 5. Be on the screen behind me. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Our worth and value doesn't come from anything we can do in and of ourselves. All of our worth, all our value, all our significance comes from the fact that we are known and loved by God, created by him in his image. Abraham wasn't perfect, by the way. He had his moments. We read this text here, 
that he didn't weaken in faith, that he didn't waver in, in faith. And, and it's a little bit confusing. Some of us are scratching our heads thinking maybe, maybe Paul must have made a mistake. Abraham wasn't perfect. But by the way, that's why I think it's so valuable to read Christian biographies. We have a way of idolizing people. There are people who are worth admiring, but one thing you learn when you read Christian biographies is that everybody has their problems, everybody has their moments, everybody is weak and broken. Reading Christian biographies helps to demythologize people. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his commentary on this section. He says this, some of the greatest saints the church has ever known testify to the fact that they have been attacked and assailed by doubts to the end of their lives. But they were not weakened, he says. They did not give in. They mastered their doubts. They conquered them. They overcame to be a faithful Christian, isn't this good news? It doesn't mean that we never have doubts. It doesn't mean that we, we never have fears. It doesn't mean that we never make mistakes. The Lord knows we do, and the Lord knows we will. It means that those doubts and fears, they, they don't ultimately have us. Paul isn't trying to airbrush Abraham for us. He can't do that. We have access to the story. We, we know the mistakes Abraham made. We know how he doubted with Hagar. We know what he did with his own wife. Paul is painting a broad brush picture. By the grace of God, he's saying, Abraham proved to be a believer. It's not that he didn't have doubts or fears or make mistakes. It's that his doubts were incidental. They were not fundamental. He didn't build his life upon those doubts. They didn't rule him. Yeah, he may have tripped over them every once in a while, but at the end of the day, for all of his ups and downs, the fundamental direction of Abraham's life was to trust the God of promise. He believed God would do what he promised. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But look at this. Instead, he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God. What does that mean? Listen, in his faith, he kept holding fast, and in doing so, he kept believing God, and he kept following God. He kept trusting God, and he kept living for God. That's what it means to bring God glory. That's what it means to magnify God, that we have put all of our faith in him, completely in him. This is the key to strengthening our faith. Doubts will come, but they can be overcome when we, like Abraham, look to God and believe in the character and nature of our God. Look at verse 21 and 22. I love this phrase, fully convinced. That is a phenomenal definition of what it means to have faith in God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. We too must be fully convinced. We must be fully convinced, listen, that we are not enough, but that God is. That we are not adequate enough, but God is. That we are not sufficient, but God is. That we are not strong, but God is. This is the key to spiritual success and spiritual strength and spiritual courage. This is the key to not weakening in faith, not wavering in faith, but growing strong in our faith in order that we too might give glory to God. See, how, how can I do this this year as we kick off 2021, I want to encourage you to know God's Word this year more than you ever have before, and not just knowing facts and details and not just studying theology, but going to the Word of God to know the God of the Word. 
to go to his word and, and to ask the questions, God, tell me, show me, what have you done? Who are you? What are you like? Show me your glory. You see, we only become fully convinced or convicted when we know God's word. We need to fill our minds and deepen our convictions so that God will strengthen our faith. This is so critical to be prepared for the times when doubt will cross our path, when challenges arise. Maybe you're sitting at home and this is a relatively good season in your life. And I would say to you, you need to get after the, the Word of God. You need to get after the God of the Word now in this season because difficulties are coming. They are. And the only way you're going to be able to handle those and navigate those well is if you have soaked yourself and immersed yourself in the Word of God so that the Word of God controls you, the truth is about who He is, and, and not your circumstances, not your feelings, not your emotions. I want to encourage you this year, it's my desire as well, to spend more time in the Word of God than, than ever before. We have a lot of spare time on our hands. Many of us do. So put down the, the, the TV remote. Put down the, the, the iPads and the devices. Get off of social media for a significant season. Eliminate some things from your life and throw yourself into the task of getting after the Word of God. That is our hope. And the hope against hope that we have is the hope that it is in God, not man, that God is the one who creates all life by the power of his word and that overcomes the problems of our weakness, which finally provides the possibility for our witness. It's interesting, in verse 22, it says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteous. But listen to this, this but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What he's making so abundantly clear here is that the promise that was given to Abraham was not just given to Abraham, that God had you and me in mind, that God desired for us to look at the example of Abraham and see his own witness and testimony that he himself believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and to realize the possibility for, for our own testimony that we too can hold the same testimony as Abraham, that he is fundamentally no different than anybody else who turns to God and puts their faith in the promise of God, the promise of Jesus Christ. We too can have righteousness credited to our account. The imputation of righteousness to Abraham shows how God imputes righteousness to the believer of every age. The conception of Isaac was the work of the God who gives life to the dead, and in that way, God fulfilled His promise to Abraham. God did what He promised to do. He showed Abraham in real time, that he was the God who would keep his promise. He fulfilled that promise to Abraham, at least in part. See, what was the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham? The New Testament Scriptures are so clear on this. Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. Jesus was the one that Abraham was ultimately looking to. You see, the provision of Isaac foreshadowed the greater fulfillment that God would bring about 
the promised provision of Jesus Christ. From the dead, God brought Isaac to life. But you see, that points us to a greater resurrection. From the dead, God brought Jesus to life. Abraham was looking forward to Jesus. Say, are you sure he actually believed in Jesus? Are you sure that that's, are you just kind of inserting Jesus at the end because the sermon's kind of coming to an end and you got to get Jesus back into the picture? Well, listen, let, let me let Jesus clarify this and clear this up for us this morning. Listen to what he says in John 8, 56. He says this, speaking to the Jews, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. You see, in Jesus, the promise of God to Abraham is full and final because he was delivered over to death for our sins. That's exactly what Paul says here. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was delivered up to death. He paid the penalty that we owed. All of God's wrath poured out on him for us in our place. But you see, he was raised to life for our justification. The promise of the gospel is not just that Jesus pays for our sins, is that God brings us to new life. God creates in us. He brings from the dead to life. The resurrection proves that Jesus' payment was accepted, and it becomes the grounds for our own assurance. We can know for sure that we have been justified, that we have been made right with God. Just as the birth of Isaac assured Abraham and Sarah of the power and faithfulness of the God of promise, so Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, proves to us that God is able to do what he promised to do, that God can reverse the curse, that God can deal with sin and death, and that he overcomes, and by faith in him, we become overcomers too. And this assurance provides the possibility now for our witness. As Abraham's life becomes a witness and a testimony to many to look at and say, this is what God can do, I want to encourage you, so too God is doing the exact same thing in your life if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. See, Abraham's story of faith in God that was counted to him as righteousness was not for his sake alone. What we experience, he experienced. We're not saved the same way. Sorry, we are all saved the same way as Abraham, and our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is another story in the greater story that God is telling, the story of redemption that is centered upon Jesus Christ. Every one of us in Christ has a story of how God met us, of how God spoke to us through his word, about how God exposed our weakness and our inability to save ourselves and how God pointed us to Christ. Every one of us has a testimony of how God took us who were spiritually dead and raised us to life, how God brought something out of nothing. And that story points to the one who accomplished it through the cross. Abraham and our story points to the story of Jesus the story of the Bible begins with creation. The story of the Bible ends with new creation. But that new creation actually begins in the middle of the Bible. At the beginning, God said, go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This was the creation mandate or the creation commission. 
And in this world broken by sin, Jesus enters, he lives, he dies, and he rises from the grave. And in so doing, he declares, I am the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, the one through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I have come to reverse the curse, to bring the dead to life through me, to bring about a new creation. And I will begin with humanity. Just like at the beginning, God invites humanity to participate in his new creation activity. We as God's children are given a new creation mandate, a call to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, not physically but spiritually. Jesus, in the Great Commission or the New Creation Commission, tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. David Clarkson wrote these words many years ago. He said, let old things pass away, let all things become new. You who brought this world out of nothing with a word can with a word work in me this new creation. You see, it is God who creates all life through the person of his word that overcomes the obstacles of our weakness and provides the possibility of our witness. It's a possibility because we have to decide to do it. We get to choose to participate. God calls us to it, but each and every day we must wake up and we must say, God, you have given me new life. You have created in me something new. Use me now, O God, to go forth, to be a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to declare that God brings the dead to life, to point people to Jesus so that he might be glorified and he might be magnified over all the earth. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth, Lord, that we find here. Thank you for the truth that nourishes our souls, that strengthens our faith. And Father, as we close our time in your word, we pray, God, that your word would fall on good soil today, that it would spring forth and bear fruit Father, we acknowledge the words of Jesus to be true in John 15, 5, that apart from you, we can do nothing. We believe, Lord, like Abraham, that you are the all-powerful God who creates everything out of nothing, who brings the dead to life. And we pray, God, that as your new creation, that you would use us, Use us, O oh Lord, to declare the creation power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to call men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation, to tell them that the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham is here. The blessing to the nations is here. Turn to Jesus. Believe upon him. And God, we pray that in all this, above all, you and you alone would be magnified. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.